What's up, Pistown Pals? It's just past 8 p.m. on the East Coast. We are broadcasting out of the May Rip, the Middle East Report studio in Washington, D.C. I am Sam Sachs. I'm Sam Knight. Coming up on the show tonight. There is a rally in Washington on Saturday against Trump administration meddling in Venezuela. We talked to an organizer in the Answer Coalition, Gloria LaRiva from PSL. Yes, it's the uh, first time we've ever had a presidential candidate on the show. Also, we're going to be talking about airplanes in just a second. Some uh, Paul Manafort news we'll get into. We're going to bring in the garbage can at the end of the show. We're going to throw someone in it. Senate Democrats actually not nominated this week. Neither are House Democrats. So uh, the can is up for grabs. Anybody's to win. You can vote right now. Patreon.com slash District Sentinel. If you are a subscriber, just five bucks a month, you can take part in the vote. It's open uh, for another 45 minutes or or so. A lot of good candidates this week. Yeah, we do have a front runner, but if there are enough people who pile in, enough people who subscribe, uh, the outcome could be changed. Your, yeah. Your voice still matters. You are the Florida of the Garbage Can Electoral College. That is true. All right, we're going to get to uh, some news here, but my camera's kind of dark here. It's a little dark in here. Um I guess that doesn't matter to the people who are listening to the show. (laughs) Anyways, we're going to get to the news, but I want to talk about something that happened this week. Uh, It's pretty freaking important. It's perhaps one of the biggest stories of our lifetimes. Uh, I don't want to get too coast to coast AM here on the show, but it was just a few years ago that we had that uh, New York Times bombshell story about uh, the alien alloys. Remember that? Remember that story about the, the government uh, program, secret government program to monitor uh, UFOs and stuff. And there was like that throwaway line about alien alloys. Do you remember that? Uh, no, I don't. Well, <laughs> it's unfortunate. It is Because it left an impression on me. But uh, we haven't had much follow-up in the years since about what that meant, what these alien alloys were, were or any uh, more conclusive evidence of being visited by extraterrestrial life until this week, folks, until this week when this happened. Holy cow. This is Mitt Romney being presented with a Twinkie cake filled with candles. Look at this. And to the shock of everybody, he begins picking up each candle one by one and blowing them out and holding them in his hand. I think this is the sign of a very repressed individual. And it's something wearing a Mitt Romney suit, okay? This is not normal. This is not okay. This is not okay. He's going to ask for sugar and water after this. I think I think Mitt Romney is picking up the candles and whispering to them uh, about times he wished he snuck out of his parents' house when he was growing up. That, that could be. That could be. <laughs> I don't know. This video disturbed me. You throw I, it's just it's not really just this video. It's kind of the totality of evidence. It's the whole um, my my favorite meat is hot dog. Uh, my second favorite meat is hamburger. Uh, his whole thing about Wawa's. Then again, you could easily confuse some completely out of touch rich guy with being from another planet. I guess that makes sense too. Yeah. Maybe maybe his uh, dad, the governor, yelled at him for spitting on the birthday cake when he was a kid. I did see someone tweet that maybe this is the first time anyone's ever given a birthday cake to Mitt Romney. Yeah. Which it does. could be true. Maybe he was nervous uh, that the Twinkie cake would have fallen over if he blew out the, uh, the candles <laughs> without picking them up. But I think it's just he's, he's a weirdo. 
The uh, chat room is speculating that he might be a lizard person. He could be a lizard person. We haven't brought that up. No. We haven't slowed down the video frame by frame to look for evidence of shape-shifting. Or inner eyelids (laughs) that blink sideways. Okay, uh, as we were walking in about, I guess, an hour and a half before uh, we started the show, big news out of the Senate, good news to start the show with today, war powers resolution and U.S. involvement in uh, the Saudi war in Yemen passed. Uh, This was the measure that was sponsored by Senator Bernard Sanders, uh, also sponsored by Democrat Chris Murphy and Republican Mike Lee. Um, This is the second time that the Senate has passed this measure from Sanders, this War Powers Resolution. It was passed last year under a Republican uh, when when Republicans controlled the House. Um, It didn't go anywhere as a result. Uh, This time, Democrats controlled the House, and they passed uh, a very similar resolution Uh, earlier this year, um, but they will have to take up the Senate resolution again. It's expected to pass. All this good news, bad news, they'll send it to the president's desk where it'll be vetoed. And not enough votes at the moment to To overturn overturn it. Yeah, Yeah, 54 uh, in support. Um, They're going to need a lot more Republicans to get on board. Seven so far, Danes, Lee, Moran, Murkowski, Rand Paul, and uh, Young. Of Indiana. I was about to say Don Young. That's Alaska. That's the House. It's Todd Young of Indiana in the Senate. So, true, true story. <laughs> more good news. We're on a roll uh, this week. We usually start with real shit news, but instead we were talking about Mitt Romney being an alien, the uh, war powers resolution passing in the Senate. Now, more good news. The Boeing 737 MAX 8 and 9 airplanes are now grounded in the United States. Of course, it took pretty much every major country in the world to ban the plane. In fact, there was a brief period of time today when the U.S. was the only country with a, a major air system that <laughs> that allowed these planes to fly in it. Um, then the Trump administration moved on this, I guess, fearing that there might be another crash. The concerns came after two crashes within five months involving the air- aircraft. One was in Indonesia. Uh, killed 189 people, one recently in Ethiopia that killed 157 people. Canada's transportation minister said he found similarities in the flight paths of the two crashes, which prompted Wednesday's decision uh, from the Canadian government to prohibit the plane from its airspace. Before grounding the planes, Trump did acknowledge that there was something wrong with the plane. <laughs> something. On Twitter, he uh, went on a long thread. Airplanes are becoming far too complex to fly. Pilots are no longer needed, but rather computer scientists from MIT. (laughs) I see it all the time in many products, always seeking to go one unnecessary step further when often old and simpler is far better. Split second decisions. You can can go on uh, from there. Not really getting at the problem here, just going on a a Twitter rant. Anyways, uh, I I hate flying and uh, I hated that this story was looming out there. Um, and there was a good few hours today where it looked like the Trump administration was going to keep this death trap in the air just because the Boeing CEO gave a million bucks to his inauguration committee and just because the current acting defense secretary worked at Boeing for three decades. <laughs> Sometimes we forget that there's a currently an acting defense secretary and has been there for a while. And, Uh, is there for the foreseeable future. Um, But yeah, I'm glad this is all sorted out for now. Worth remembering, though, that pilots were complaining about this aircraft. The question is, how much did Boeing know and how much effort was Boeing expending in the background to prevent grounding of the aircraft? This could be fodder for a congressional probe. In fact, Congressman Dan Kildee, Democrat from Michigan, told reporters, quote, I think the questions have to be answered, and if they're not going to be answered in the near term voluntarily by those who have information that can help us understand what took place, then I think Congress then would absolutely have a duty to act and subpoena those people to come and testify. Remember a few weeks ago when uh, uh, Republicans, conservatives were uh, dragging uh, the Green New Deal and Democrats for being anti-airplane? I think I think after this week, maybe that's obviously bullshit. They're not anti-airplane and the Green New Deal obviously allows for airplane travel. But maybe we should lean into that a little bit more, become more anti-airplane. I could hell yeah, I could get behind that anti-airplane. Count me in. The anti-airplane people are correct. 
Uh, Good and correct. A lot, a lot of annual subsidies for Boeing. Point that out. Millions, billions. Yeah. Trillions. Well, not trillions, but uh, millions to billions over the past few decades. Uh, that's for sure. The Senate today confirmed another hack to the second highest court in the land. Senators voted along party lines, 53 to 46, to confirm Naomi Rao's nomination to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. She took the place vacated by Brett Kavanaugh. Democrats criticized Rao for her lack of non-academic legal experience and past commentary on sexual assault. Rao said she regretted the writings, for the record. Still, her entire career raises red flags. Rao has been a law professor at George Mason University, a school with deep ties to the Koch brothers. She has also served as (coughs) staff for Senator Orrin Hatch and George W. Bush, and as a clerk for Clarence Thomas. This is the resume of someone who is a conservative ideologue through and through. Illinois Democrat Dick Durbin criticized Rao today, saying, quote, she has minimal experience practicing law, no trials, no appeals, only one brief filed in U.S. court, and her writings on race, sexual assault, and other issues are deeply troubling. So uh, she now has a job for life as a judge on the second most powerful court in the country, extremely functional system we have. This uh, speaks back to Pelosi talking about it's not worth impeaching Trump. Yeah. He's getting all these judges, and he's going to keep getting these judges for the next two fucking years, year and 10 months or whatever, until the next election, eight months. I'd say that's worth it just to stop even one of these judges by doing what we're supposed to be doing when you have a criminal president or a racist president or whatever president who's highly unpopular and you can use this process to get him out of there anyways speaking of uh the president's criminality his former campaign manager paul manafort got three and a half more years tacked onto his prison sentence brings his uh total sentence to seven and a half years in jail he was also charged uh, uh for state crimes uh, in new york and which could lead to more jail time for manafort Ultimately, I'm okay with the seven and a half years. Um, the problem isn't that Manafort didn't get enough time in prison. The problem is that people with lesser means get too much time in prison. Uh, sometimes people confuse that and say that we need to throw rich people or white people in jail for longer when really we need to reduce the number of people we're throwing in jail uh, altogether. And if you if you thought that Manafort was going to get like 25 years and you're just not paying attention to how uh, white collar crimes are often prosecuted in this country, especially against people, uh, especially against rich people and especially against people who don't have previous criminal records. Um, In fact, a report here from The Washington Post uh, showed that a review of data for uh, 452 similar cases cases to Manafort's nationwide in fiscal 2018. The average prison sentence in such bank fraud cases was about 31 months, roughly 16 months shorter than the 47 months Manafort received for convictions in federal court in uh, Northern Virginia. Are you okay with uh, the Manafort sentence here? That's a long time. It is long. Seven and a half years in jail. Yeah, by okay. I can do seven and a half no. days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not rejoicing over someone going to jail for seven years. And by uh, okay, I mean, uh, I just, I, I, I don't think it needed to be longer. Right. But uh, yeah, no one here gives a shit about Paul Manafort. He can die in jail for all I care. He's a piece of shit. Thinking and- of restyling myself, though, as one of the people who show up, uh, I guess it's too late now. <laughs> I guess I could do it outside. Uh, nah, it's too late for that, too. But uh, standing outside Paul Manafort lawyer press briefings with signs and just shouting <laughs> down his lawyers. That was great. I, it was obviously uh, like the most annoying Washington liberals who were there, but... I just love a good hate fest. And there were all these people screaming at Paul Manafort's lawyer. (laughs) Uh, And the vitriol was just, uh, you know, you got to appreciate it. You got to appreciate the hate. And it was palpable. And uh, it was funny. It was very funny. There was also a guy with a sign. What did it say? It said, this is a sign. This is a sign. uh, That guy was not really that funny. I thought (laughs) people screaming hate were more funny. Uh, Anyway, moving on, CIA agents are reportedly suspects in a burglary of the North Korean embassy in Madrid. Intelligence officials in Spain are making the accusations, according to Spanish media outlets and The Guardian. 
The robbery took place on February 22nd, just before President Trump's second summit with Kim Jong-un. El Pais reported that the assailants were Korean, but two had links to the CIA, and that the agency denied involvement, but Spanish officials were not convinced. The paper also noted that a top North Korean envoy, Kim Hyuk Chol, served as ambassador to Spain until September 2017 when he was expelled. So if there were CIA agents looking for information on this envoy, they could possibly have found it uh, at the North Korean uh, facility, the diplomatic facility, the embassy uh, in Madrid. I feel like there's a lot of... I feel like there's a lot of weird cloak and dagger spy shit going on right now nowadays, and not Loves not, not off like Trump. Yeah, not like this isn't hasn't been going on all the time for decades, going back to fucking fifties and before that. But maybe maybe these agencies are just getting worse at doing it and are getting caught doing this stuff more. Maybe that's thanks to social media and technology, and you can get this word out and make connections a lot easier. But you know, we stuff that just happened in Haiti, which we just conducted an interview uh, with uh, Jake Johnson. Yeah. With the CEPR. Yeah. He's C-E-P-R, got an article over there. Yep. Um, about the Haiti situation. That'll be released tomorrow for everyone, by the way. it's a it, it, That's a real weird story with the uh, mercenaries that were picked up in Haiti. But given what's going on in Venezuela and all that stuff, too, I'm just... I feel like there's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. I mean, do you remember at the start of the Trump presidency especially after that bizarre press conference he gave at the cia where everyone said oh uh, you know trump is antagonizing the intelligence community blah 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 this that the other they are probably it, it seems like they are able to operate much more freely and are given this leeway to to make these big prolific fuck-ups under trump Definitely. and they know they can get away with this because trump you know, he wants the gloves off. Yeah, and it's, it's like when uh, the generals drop the Moab. Yeah. <laughs> they have free reign to do what they want, so they're dropping Moabs. Now we're breaking into, like, embassies in Spain. Right, so, I mean, right-wing people freaking out about the deep state are, you know, kind of overlooking the fact that Trump is uh, enabling large parts of the deep state to do some of the uh, gro- most grotesque shit uh, they can get away with. I think that's a good segue. Yes, it is. In the weeks before the 2003 invasion of Iraq, protesters gathered all over the world to call on the Bush administration to reconsider its plans for war. With Republicans in Washington ratcheting up conflict once again, this time in Venezuela, organizers of that 2003 demonstration are rallying once again against U.S. aggression. The Answer Coalition is holding a demonstration Saturday here in Washington Gloria, excuse me, Gloria Lariva from the Party for Socialism and Liberation joined us, stopped by in studio to talk about the protest and her recent trip to Venezuela. Gloria, we're uh, happy to have you on the show and in studio with us today. Um, You've been in Venezuela for the last month. You just got back yesterday. Let's start off by talking about what is the vibe like uh, in the country right now? Um, as Marco Rubio in the U.S. government is angling to try and overthrow the government there. You mean Narco Rubio. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Narco Rubio, yes. I can't, I can't call him by his actual name. Um, but I, I was, yes, there for a month, uh, different provinces, and it's not anything like the U.S. is painting. The U.S. media is creating a most frightful scene of people dying of starvation, of you know, chaos, and now they're saying the economy and the government has collapsed. It is not true. Certainly there are hardships. And largely due, I mean, almost entirely due to the sanctions that the U.S. is steadily increasing. And the economic war by the big corporations, which are hostile to the idea of socialism in Venezuela. But in these days, it has been peaceful. I did a lot of videoing in the street of myself talking while people were crossing the street, buying food, shopping uh, in parks. And the, but, the, but the difficulty was the last four days that I was there. Starting last Thursday, I was about to fly out for a 7 p.m. flight to here, and suddenly the lights went out at the airport at 5 o'clock. After about two hours, 
I realized hearing from people that the whole country was plunged into darkness. Hmm. And until Monday when I left, it was almost continual blackout with one hour and one day, five hours, four hours, because what was happening was that the main source of electricity, El Guri hydroelectric plant in the south part of the country, was being hacked by cyber war. And as the technicians and engineers were furiously fighting to restore it each time, it kept getting brought back down. And so it was true that by the third day, there was no water in the homes. Because, you know, people sometimes will have buckets of water for contingency, but there was no water. Mm -hmm. And so people were in the street looking for water. And this is a war because you had Pompeo, the secretary of state, bragging about this, saying, no food, no water, next, Maduro out. This is criminal. And Guaido, this uh, pretender who is a complete puppet, he has no force except the U.S. behind him. He makes all these declarations. He was boasting about it. And you do not find the opposition in the street helping the people, only the government. I was going to ask about that. I mean, you were there for a month. It's only in the last few days that we've seen these blackouts start happening. And obviously, it's hard to, uh, at this juncture, confirm who or what is behind it. But it seems more than a coincidence that as the rhetoric around a, a coup from policymakers in the U.S. gets more and more desperate, clearly they thought this was going to be easier. There was a report that Guaido made a promise that 50% of the military was going to desert. <laughs> and it was what, like 3%? 0.01% oh, yeah, or something like that? Way less than that. Yeah, there were yeah. only hundreds out of a military of hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, right? it seems like as the desperation mounts or as this isn't going according to plan, the tactics are increasing. We've seen reports that uh, embassy staff is being pulled out. Uh, Americans are being told to leave uh, Venezuela. Are, 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 are you seeing the same uh, stark increase in the, t- or I guess, uh, Uh, escalation in tactics around Venezuela right now? It's very, very dangerous. But I want to say something about the hacking and the cyber war that Marco Narco Rubio (laughs) and Guaido were actually talking about it before it happened. Hmm. That that Guaido was indicating in his tweets that he had knowledge of this. And they, uh, it will come out. The government is now going to present its proof to the United Nations. Well, it certainly would not surprise me because uh, we just saw the New York Times catching up to what people were saying online right after it happened, which which is these aid convoys were burnt, these quote unquote aid convoys, because Mm. New York Times hasn't quite caught up fully yet. They still sort of accept the idea that these are legitimate aid convoys, uh, and they're definitely not uh, as demonst- as international aid agencies have said. But uh, the point is, is that the New York Times was playing catch-up to a lot of people on social media, including Boots Riley, uh, the uh, creator of uh, Sorry to Bother You, the coup lead singer, the communist uh, cultural icon, was, <laughs> was saying this weeks before the New York Times, and suddenly the New York Times is like, hey, that aid, con- that aid convoy burning, uh, it wasn't actually Maduro's people who did it. Right. And the interesting thing about that story, which is from Sunday New York Times, I highly recommend people look for it. It's being sent out on all the social media, was that the Colombian government cut out 13 minutes of the video Mm. that showed. And the New York Times, strangely enough, because they've been part of this media war against Venezuela, they did do an amazing investigation, got the original footage to show side by side how it was cut out to justify this aggression against Maduro. There is a, there was a press conference before that confrontation at the bridge, and I had heard from Diosdado Cabello, who is the vice president of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, and he explained one interesting point. He said, the U.S. is saying that they will bring 70 tons of aid to the border to try to force it into Venezuela and make the government accept it. 70 tons, he said, but in that region alone, the Andes region of Venezuela, we deliver 12,000 tons of food 
on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so it was very it was simply a battering ram. The real purpose, according to many people I spoke to, of that bridge incident on February 23rd, one month after Waitho declared himself president. I'd like to declare myself president. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is, sounds funny, but I ran for president in 2016, and I got more votes than Waitho did. <laughs> It, and he, when he when he ran for um, national assembly, so well, there we're assembling a coalition of fifty one countries right now, uh, Gloria, to declare you the uh, yes. legitimate president. We're of the talking United to States. our contacts in the U.S. military; they are prepared <laughs> to desert <laughs> and support you. We'll find well, one congressperson <laughs> to give it a veil of legitimacy. To well, but, but when he, but the, to go back to that bridge incident, the purpose of the U.S. was to try to get military officers and and GIs to to turn coat. And you saw Trump just a couple of days before that saying, you've got one last chance to turn to our side or you'll lose everything. And as you said, 300,000 soldiers, uh, armed forces, 300. Mm-hmm. Mostly young people who left to the border because they were afraid. And now you see how by scabbing, and by betraying their country, they're being told that they have to take lie detector tests in Colombia to prove that they're not spies. Mm. It's you know they're tr- being treated like dirt now. The yeah. uh, another th- another interesting thing about that uh, bridge incident, which uh, the Intercept reported extensively on, is that bridge had never been used. <laughs> It had never been used, and they were trying to claim that the Venezuelans were uh, shutting it down when, in fact, yes. the opposite was true. It had never been in use. Well, there were actually two bridges. I was there for those days. Mm. I was. There were two bridges. The Tienditas Bridge, which is the one that has never been used. Venezuela paid for this very modern six-lane bridge that goes right up to the border. But the Colombian government has refused to do its part in establishing customs, uh, customs uh, policy there, in order to make sure that what comes through the both sides is not drugs or contraband, because there's massive contraband of all the subsidized goods, gasoline, which is really free in Venezuela. It's really free. All these subsidized goods that, that the co- country pr- provides, the government, that black marketeers take it into Colombia to make a profit and sell it. So the Colombian government has refused to engage in a customs policy to protect Venezuela from this contraband uh, because its people in that town of Cucuta actually benefit from it because they're so poor. And they're part of that, Colombia. They know what's going on. So I was there at the Tienditas Bridge and the National Guard youth, because they're like 19, 20 years old, they they had a barrier on both sides about 200 yards away protecting hundreds of us who were there at the bridge. There had been a concert the day before and we were there all day and the National Guard was firing tear gas to keep these extremely violent, I mean terrorists who had Molotov cocktails. They burned four National Guardsmen and one of them had his face burned, seriously burned through this violence. And um, so we were there all day. It was a victory because they weren't able to pass. But the other bridge was where the two convoy trucks were burned by the fascist elements on the Colombian side. And the people there, the, the pro-government, pro-Chavista people, were seriously uh, hit with rocks, Molotovs. There were some 300 injuries. Mm. Um on, on both sides, but most of the people were the ones hit by the, the fascist groups. And yet they were successful. They were not able to come through with this false aid. You mentioned that the on-the-ground situation in Venezuela isn't as, as desperate or dire as a lot of U.S. policymakers want it to seem, though things are, are bad and the blackouts recently have made this a lot worse. Talking to people there, uh, what is their sense of what's going on? Obviously, this isn't the first time the U.S. has uh, tried to interfere in Venezuelan politics, and they tried to launch a coup in 2002. Um, 
Do people in Venezuela feel like that's happening again? Is there a sense that they are under attack? You mentioned this is a war. Is there a sense that they're under attack by the United States and allies uh, of the U.S. or uh, I guess the the uh, Guaido government? Well, that's a good question. In quotation marks. First of all, I guess when we talk about the Venezuelan people, we have to make a distinction. There's the pro-U.S. forces, the the right wing, the opposition to the government, and then there's the people who support the government. Um, the majority of people support the government, but and it's a class situation. The poor and the working class are tend to be for Maduro and the Chavez, you know, legacy. Then you go to the ultra-rich, um, the middle classes that have high aspirations and illusions about the U.S. and what the U.S. will do for them. I went to a right-wing protest just to see what it was like. They were meeting Guaido when he came back on um, in early March after his tour through Latin America to seek support for the overthrow of the government. And uh, the people are vicious. <laughs> They, it was a peaceful march, but the things they were saying, we want the troops in. I said, Sort of you know, like a Trump rally. Oh, yeah. I said, you know, I would talk to people. I said, I've been to war zones of the U.S. bombing. I was in Yugoslavia 10 days during the bombing. And I said, you have no idea. And they go, we know, we know people will die. That's okay. Or you, a group of youth marching in with fascist slogans. Uh, yes, this is the opposition and that is willing to have the U.S. come in. We should not, we should be clear about this. The U.S. doesn't want to just replace one man with another. They want to smash the idea of the Venezuelan revolution. Waido had said in the very beginning <clears throat> that the housing mission, the great Venezuela housing mission of 2.6 million homes built so far for the people would be ended. And then it would be privatized. The homes would be, you know, go back into a real estate market. And he also said these programs are going to go. And they want to uh, reverse the oil, uh, the state involvement in the oil company, even to uh, what it was before Chavez took over, if I'm not mistaken. They want to reprivatize oil uh, even to what it was before Chavez, decades before. Oh, yeah. And it was in the process of being privatized when Chavez came into office. In fact, uh, the, the oligarchy had purchased Sitco in the U.S. for that purpose. Mm. And so then it came into the hands of the revolutionary forces, which is now, of course, back into the hands of the U.S. that has taken the property over uh, to give, supposedly to give to Waido. But no, this is going to go right into the oil, U.S. oil companies, Exxon Mobil especially. Um, I think I want to go back to the issue of the economy. It's very hard for the people. The government has raised a minimum wage five times in the last two years. But each time it's done, all the private-owned stores of those that have, for example, the kind of personal hygiene, the kind of things that are brought from abroad, they raise their prices continually. Give you an example. You go into a store like Pharma Todo. It's the main pharmacy of the country where you can buy what a farm, you know, like CVS or Walgreens. And a bottle of lotion will cost twelve to twenty thousand, and even more. Bolivar is twelve to twenty thousand. The minimum wage is eighteen thousand per month. Hmm. You go into a, another private store, and a small bottle of beer is five. 5,500 bolivares, a third of your monthly salary. Mm. So the government in the last two years started a program called CLAP, C-L-A-P. It's an amazing program. I saw it in action, 6 million families, which means an average of about 24 million people because it's about four people per family. And each family gets per month. Now it's going to be delivered twice a month. It's a big box of three large bags of rice, you get uh, large, two bags of black beans, lentils, a lot of pasta, sugar, flour, arepa flour, which is their national food, uh, all kinds of things to get by so that they have essentials to live on. And they're providing chicken, fish, meat, beef, um, and a price of 
1,000 bolivares. It's really, really cheap. It's about 30 cents equivalent in the U.S. to overcome this crisis. This is the government's view, help the people. And um, it's not the way that you can operate permanently, but it's part of trying to overcome the economic war. So tell us about uh, what's going on here in D.C. this weekend. What is, there's a big rally, and uh, you are speaking, are you not? I'm one of many speaking. Of course. (laughs) Well, I didn't think it was just I think that this is going to be a great, great event. And I urge everyone who's hearing, who's, you know, able to make it, to come to Washington, D.C. for the rally on Saturday, March 16, in front of the White House. It's the Answer Coalition, correct? Yes, Answer, Code Pink, Veterans for Peace, too many to mention, but many, many people have joined in this coalition, and it's growing as people see the urgency of, of protesting. It, when you have these Latin American right-wing governments that are shamelessly joining with the U.S. against their own neighbor, Venezuela, when you have Canada which is playing a major role against Venezuela, sanctions, all kinds of things, and also against Cuba. When you have all these governments and the European Union, which is not for the war, but still they're applying sanctions as well, then it comes down to the people. We have to do it. And, it, and it, we in the United States have that duty. It's our tax dollars being used to wage another war against Venezuela. We can't have that happen. Again, Washington. Um, I, I'm, af- I'm afraid to say, I think it's noon or 1 p.m., but come at noon. <laughs> we need you. We need you there to help with the logistics, to help get the word out, and to help set up. There will be a forum right afterwards at a church nearby, and there'll be a video. I'll have video from the trip, amazing footage. And uh, again, it'd be a great array of people who, actually some people who are there now in Venezuela coming back. Answer, uh, perhaps, is best known for organizing the massive anti-war protests in 2003, right before the invasion of Iraq, which is probably the most vindicated protest action in modern history. Didn't stop the war, but I think a lot of people now (laughs) look back on that protest as like the most clear example of hundreds of thousands of people being correct. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> against their government, uh, what they were doing. But uh, I think, it, I guess what I want to ask in the context of that is, w- w- what do you think we can learn from that as organizers uh, trying to stop this current escalating conflict in Venezuela? Because, I mean, it does feel good to be correct, but also it would be nice to stop uh, bad things from happening. I think the main lesson for us in this struggle of any cause, whether it's housing, domestic issues, is persistence, is solidarity with other people struggling, but never giving up, because as long as you fight, you have a chance. And I see a sea change happening since 2011 with the Occupy. It gave us a window into what will happen in the future, that the people will unite. The concept of 99% came out of that. The idea that there's this minority of the ultra-rich, which have been richer since then, that we see here in the U.S., the housing crisis of these big Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Google, that they're taking over cities and wiping out the ability of people to even Mm. live and have a roof over their heads. Don't forget Amazon. (laughs) Oh, yes, Amazon. But there was a victory. There There was was in New York. Queens. In Queens. Right. And then now the city is saying, well, let's try it again. You know, Amazon, come back. We'll we'll make sure it happens. No. (laughs) So that was a victory. But we have to generalize our own specific struggle, whether it's housing or health care or anything, jobs, poverty, racism, police brutality, and generalize what's happening in the world. That it's a struggle of the capitalists against the people of the world. The fact that you can have this great housing mission in Venezuela. Everyone I talked to who had their housing now, they bought it symbolically. Like, oh, how long did it take you to buy it? You know, poor family. A year, two years, three years, and now we're the owners. 
You know, what, how long does it take us if you're lucky enough to keep a job for 30 years? Yeah, exactly. It's decades over here. I want to say one thing. I live in San Francisco. My husband and I have paid 36 years of rent. If we were five days late, we would get evicted tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> San Francisco, the only city uh, comparable to rents here, I guess, in New York. But yeah, three expensive rents. Um Clearly, the other side has generalized this. And this I, I, I'm not saying the Trump administration has jumped into the situation in Venezuela for this purpose, but it's definitely a consequence is that they can uh, argue against socialism here in the United States by pointing to Venezuela. You even see Howard Schultz did that recently, the, the Starbucks guy who's probably going to run or at least threaten to run in the Democratic primary. Um, even people, there's, there's so much pressure on the debate here in the U.S. when the entire foreign policy establishment supports coups uh, and supports intervention in Venezuela. You have Democrats on board, Republicans on board, think tanks on board, the media is on board. And even people who aren't on board feel that pressure when they're commenting on it. And if they don't support the coup, they still have to preface their comments with, Maduro is a bad guy, but... How? What's your advice to socialists in the U.S. who want to talk about this topic? How do they sort of navigate this issue? I mean, Venezuela does have problems. A lot of those problems, though, are a result of U.S. imperialism going back decades. But how do you talk about these issues? And uh, I mean, we're, we're not really the issue isn't really the efficacy of the Maduro government. It's the fact that the U.S. is trying to launch a coup there right now, regardless of what you think of the Maduro government. But at the same time, socialists should feel comfortable defending uh, certain governments around the world. Is is Maduro's government worth defending in that regard? Absolutely. And I, I always say this about when, when, when they use examples like Venezuela or even Cuba and say, look, it's such a terrible situation. I say about Venezuela, the problem isn't socialism. The problem isn't that there is, there's not enough socialism in the country. Mm. People recognize it. It's still largely... Uh, a capitalist economy. The oil is in the hands of the government, but it is operating in a capitalist world. And so the technology, when you look at the history of the countries where the U.S. has eventually retaken the, the, the power and they claim inefficiency, like in Mexico, for example, now it's almost in the hands of foreign oil companies in Mexico, is that the technology is still controlled by the big oil companies and multinational corporations. And so they're subject to that, to that issue. The sanctions have played a big role. You can't get parts in Venezuela. But again, when Trump said, we're going to get rid of socialism in Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, very ominous words, very ominous threats, and we'll never have socialism in the United States. And I thought, well, that's a gift he gave us. Because actually there's more interest in socialism in the United States. 2016 election showed, partly because of Bernie Sanders saying he was a socialist, but it showed that there is a growing interest. Since the anti-globalization and capitalist movement that began in 99 in Seattle, the movement has largely been, we don't like capitalism, but people didn't say we want socialism. Now socialism is a word. What does it mean? It means that in the world today, everything we eat, use, wear, drive, publish, every material you look at is produced by the hands of thousands of people. Whether it's a cotton picked in the South or in another country and woven somewhere else and sewn in another country and shipped here and sold, every aspect of what we consume is made by the hands of, of social production of thousands of people. But the ownership is a handful of people, more and more that the wealth is being monopolized into a tiny few who make dictatorial decisions about our lives, what plants will be shut down, what war will be carried out in their name to maximize their profit, what country's government will be overthrown because it's protecting its people from those corporations. So this is the big conflict, the big, as I say, contradiction of capitalism and why the only thing 
uh, preventing us from having an economy where we save the environment, where we stop the production of this mad production of oil, of the plastics filling the oceans, all these things. We know what kind of life we want to have. It's capitalism that's the problem. Yeah, yeah I, I remember arguing while well, having a friendly debate with a cap- capitalist roommate uh, who, who made the tried to make the point that we need incentives to work and capitalism provides those. I, I don't agree that capitalism provides incentives to work, but I responded, just look, look at the look at the garbage patch in the ocean. We need less incentive to be producing, producing shit just for the sake of it, and uh, capitalism's not working. So well, I'm sorry, I'm just meandering there. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a good point. This is what I say. I say the capitalists are the only ones who need an incentive of profit to work. If they can't make <laughs> yeah. a profit, they won't get it. They will not operate. The people, when you look at history, the people who fought slavery, the people who um, invented on behalf of humanity, they did it to help humanity. Mm. There's one great example. Jan Matzeliger, he was a black man who invented this extremely complex shoe-lasting machine that revolutionized shoemaking and made shoes possible for the people of the world. He was a poor, very poor immigrant who lived in Massachusetts. He spent years as an extremely poor man. He died poor, hmm. but he, he did it to help people have shoes. I mean, one example. I do get a kick out of the fact that a lot of Democratic candidates who, if they were running eight years ago, would proudly say that they're a capitalist. But now when they're asked the Not question- Not even Hickenlooper. Yeah. Are you a capitalist? They hedge. People are afraid to admit it now. That was, that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, Cuba, Cuba's role in this, we saw Mike Pompeo. Oh, Clearly, this isn't just about Venezuela, by the way. This does speak to uh, conquering socialism around the world. But uh, Mike Pompeo, just the other day, referring to Cuba as imperialist Cuba- I thought, oh my God, you're really reaching. You are really desperate. Um, Well, Cuba and Venezuela have a very close relationship. It's true. And And Cuba, after the coup of the United States against Hugo Chavez, which was successfully defeated in 2002, and then the oil sabotage, which shut down the oil industry, by hacking, by the way, by the cybernetic attack from a Texas corporation into the oil system of Venezuela, Cuba began to send thousands of doctors in an arrangement where a a free healthcare system was set up in Venezuela and Cuba was able to receive oil. That relationship still exists along, but you know, Cuba did it before the oil arrangement. They did it out of solidarity. Last week, about 10 days ago, Trump implemented this notorious Title III of the Helms-Burton Law, which is a law that was signed by Clinton in 1996 to tighten the U.S. economic, financial, and commercial blockade against Cuba. Title III is going to enable corporations, U.S. people, U.S. corporations and individuals to sue Cuba, to sue any corporation in the world that invests in Cuba. It's a very serious blow. And um, we have, again, to understand the U.S. intentions in Latin America is to reverse every bit of progress that has taken place. So Cuba and Nicaragua, we have to also understand and defend. And we haven't even mentioned Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, and I don't think we'll be able to get to that today, but just another... Uh, point driving we'll, we'll, that home. We'll keep an eye on him. Yeah. Gloria Lariva with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. The first time we've had a presidential candidate on our show, by the way. A former, uh, a former presidential former candidate. Former presidential candidate. You're not making another run? Th- Anything my, you want to announce well, on our show? <laughs> actually, in my She's party, running, folks. In my party, we're very democratic, and we, we haven't even discussed whether to run an, a candidate, but I'm, I'm sure we will. I want to say one thing. I have this scab on my face, because, and I want to explain. I fell on my face at a protest in Venezuela. I couldn't believe it. Oh, no. I was running, and I hit the ground, and I'm very lucky I didn't break my teeth. Jeez. <laughs> well, well, we're glad you're okay. Yes, and everyone... Show up Saturday, 
March 16th, uh, for the action uh, against uh, what's happening, uh, the coup effort in Venezuela, outside the White House here in D.C.? Yes, at the White House for sure. And it, please look up all the information. There's all kinds of buses and transport coming from different cities. Uh, AnswerCoalition.org. Please check us out. And if you can, make a donation. Gloria Lariva, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we are back live here in Pistown. Been following the uh, chat room here. See, there is a lot of discussion about the potential for a sieve for for the the District Sentinel gaming operation in Civ Six. Uh, we're reviewing the poll results from last week about people's availability. We have a Discord group set up, but I haven't like formatted it the way I wanted to to uh, have like have it so like our subscribers are the ones who have access to it. Uh, so I'll get that set probably by Friday. We'll have that all set up, the Civ Six Discord group. And then from there, we can start scheduling games. Are you? Were you suggesting we start as early as Friday? Uh, uh, I don't think we're going to play a game Friday. <laughs> I think we're going to unveil the, the Discord on Friday. Um, but there will be some Friday games coming up and maybe some we- and, and some weekend games. Maybe a few night games. We might have to play them over a few sessions. But, you know, I figure, like, if 30 people want to play, you really can only do... I mean, people can can create games amongst themselves that we're not involved in, but um, through the Discord group that we create, obviously. And uh, But we want to be involved in as many games as possible. And I think, like, the rec- recommended Always. number is something like having nine human players. You don't really want more than that in a game for it to run. Uh run well so you know we can we can have multiple games going on and have a tournament even of some sort but uh that's all to be figured out on the discord which hopefully we'll have that set up by uh by friday and i like i mean we we debated whether or not this should be like its own separate patreon tier to have access to the discord uh we'll just set it so people who are at five dollars have access to the discord if they want it um depending on how much time we're devoting to this thing playing Civ, maybe we'll we'll raise it but from now if you're a five dollar subscriber you can have access to the civ 6 discord uh group when uh we get that get that up and running yeah the, a lot of this has been subscriber uh driven in yeah. that people i mean we have we, dropped hints we have we have dropped hints but uh people have been wanting us to set up a discord to game especially with civ and uh, it should be fun, but yeah, I guess uh, since it is member driven, if if people want us to uh, see game p- all the time, <laughs> we might have to up those Patreons. <laughs> uh, I see some people uh, are uh, asking if we can play uh, Super Smash Brothers, Halo. Yeah, there's uh, been a request asks. for Halo. I I think we can we can mix it up. I I don't see perhaps perhaps. I mean, it, especially if we do a game like Halo, we can do a uh, like a quick round of shoot 'em up or whatever, or capture the flag or yeah, whatever the hell. Few few multiplayer kills. FIFA too. We we will play FIFA. We could definitely play some FIFA. Uh, we've done that before. <laughs> that music means one thing it's time to read some poetry on the air this is for joseph run for president of a big smelly butthole you fucking dummy (laughs) (laughs) oh sorry that was for beto (laughs) o'rourke thank you joseph this one goes out to jack bad news about the Flamin' Hot Nacho Dori Toes, they're too spicy. Thank you, Jack. Doritos too spicy. They are indeed too spicy. SK1 got me some Flamin' Hot Nacho Doritos. I had one and couldn't take it. It's too damn spicy. It was the only uh, brand that was, la- the only flavor that was, the only flavor of Doritos that was left in the store. I would usually go for the nacho cheese, which is the 
obvious choice and a popular choice. They didn't even have Cool Ranch. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, we've reached the end of the show. Interns, bring in the can. That's right, folks. This is your first time watching. We throw people in a garbage can every week. The bad takers, the shitty takers. Right there, right there, right there. That's good. Right Actually, there. bring it a little closer. So we got a couple of shitty takers, a few shitty garbage candidates. You guys are doing real good over there. If you will. It's good to tell the interns that they're doing a good job. It is. I don't think is. we do that enough. We also have 28 unpaid uh garbage can interns so that's uh and we do we do need to give them the verbal reinforcement every now and again yeah are, are our garbage can interns uh mostly fail sons because they can afford to live in dc on an unpaid internship here definitely and we make them take out our trash all right garbage candidate number one tucker carlson the white nationalist Fox News TV host is not apologizing after some pretty vile remarks, slightly more vile than what he spews nightly on television. These remarks were unearthed by Media Matters. Tucker's comments are from frequent appearances between 2006 and 2011 on the Bubba the Love Sponge show. Uh, they include, fuck, let's just run down this list here, uh, using homophobic slurs, being extremely racist, like calling Iraqis monkeys, uh, standing for child rape multiple times, actually, uh, once in the form of defending Warren Jeffs, and then uh, Tucker talking about how he himself wanted to get with uh, teenage beauty pageant participants. Really, really, really vile stuff here. Uh but Tucker responded by saying, quote, we will never back down to the mob. He's now on vacation at Fox News. He's insisting this was a pre-planned vacation, by the way. Look, Tucker Carlson is a garbage human being. None of what he said on the radio is all that surprising, given the awful shit he says every night, though the child rape stuff is extremely fucked up. But still, let's take this as a reminder of how goddamn awful Tucker Carlson is. Like one of the worst people in this town, which says a lot. There's a lot of bad people here in Washington, D.C. Throwing him in the garbage can, it's the least we can do. Garbage candidate number two, Brett Stevens. The, the New York Times columnist has spent a lot of time recently shrieking about Ilhan Omar, claiming her criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic and that she should be removed from the House Foreign Relations Committee for it. Unsurprisingly, Brett also thinks that Tucker Carlson has the constitutional right to be a celebrity. Stevens quoted a National Review piece defending Tucker, saying, quote, Our nation cannot maintain its culture of free speech if we continue to reward those who seek to destroy careers rather than rebut ideas. The problem is that Stevens thinks that you can destroy the career of someone rather than rebut their ideas if she's an elected official and a black Muslim refugee criticizing racism and corruption. But if you're a conservative trying to build a career on that same corrosive racism, Stephen appar Stevens apparently believes it's your constitutional right to have a job. He's obviously worried that people will one day pressure the New York Times to fire him, and he should be. Stevens is an unrepentant racist who coined the term the disease of the Arab mind. He should be out on his ass like Tucker Carlson. Both of these adult Boy Scout racists are nominated for the garbage can. Garbage candidate number three, uh, Aunt Becky, rich, rich parents, standing in for rich parents here. Uh, we were treated this week to one of those stories that shatter the myth of the American dream and the nation's quote-unquote meritocracy, talking about the college bribery admission scandal. 33 rich parents, including actors like Aunt Becky from Full House, uh, paid huge sums of money to get their dumb kids into so-called elite schools. It involved having their kids' applications, an entire life history doctor to get them into a preferred school because, after all, these are fail sons and fail daughters. The entire higher education system is a scam that leaves working class folks forever indebted and gives the rich who don't deserve it preferential treatment. And this story isn't even the best example of it. Dumb rich kids get preferential admissions considerations when their parents donate money to school in completely legal fashion. Or if they have legacy at a particular school. By the way, do not talk to Megan McCain about legacy admissions. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this shows how fucking dumb these fail parents are who got busted in this scheme. They didn't need to break the law. But uh, they did. 
you know, this is America. There are endless ways for rich people to get an inside track, but these dumb parents still opted for the illegal way. Uh, but maybe we shouldn't be pissed at Aunt Becky. We should be thanking her for making this problem so obvious. On second thought, we can just do both. Rich parents involved in the scandal. You're nominated for the garbage can. I think we should give Megan McCain a uh, an honorary nomination there, too, for defending legacy admissions on The View. <laughs> I think part of that had to do with the fact that she didn't know what legacy admissions were. And she just thought legacy was referring to, like, her, her family's legacy at a school <laughs> or some shit. My... <laughs> Don't denigrate the McCain legacy. Either way, she should definitely be on TV. Uh, Garbage candidate number four, Conde Nast, the director of one of the company's publications today, tweeted about a job opening that screams, I'm an abusive asshole piece of shit, and I will exploit my workers into the ground for one extra hour of a luxury vacation. David Tamarkin of Epicurious said he's looking to hire, quote, a full-time freelancer. In tweeting about this job, Tamarkin, of course, didn't tweet out a salary, just a whole lot of responsibilities, and a note that the position is perfect for someone, quote, at the beginning of her slash his career. As suspected, he also confirmed the position has no benefits when asked by someone on Twitter because, quote, it's a full-time freelance gig. 40 hours a week, no benefits, which means you have to work here your whole week and you can't depend anywhere else, get a job anywhere else that you might need to get health insurance from or something. So if this sounds weird, if this 40-hour per week freelance gig, this full-time freelance gig, if that sounds weird to you, if it sounds like it's not a thing, uh, you're not alone because people on Twitter tagged in labor regulators in New York State to report employee misclassification here by Condé Nast. And fortunately, the New York Department of Labor said it would look into the matter. So I guess uh, it kind of ends on a happy note. But either way, uh, relying on the neoliberal administrative state alone will not bring workers justice. So this week, we might have to throw Condé Nast in the garbage can. Garbage candidate full, number five. Full-time freelance position. That's, <laughs> you mean <laughs> a full-time job that just pays poorly? <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Garbage candidate number five, this guy, the hat man, Tommy Christopher. I have a feeling this will be the first of many nominations for Tommy over the next year and a half. We'll see. This week, he found himself uh, nominated for... Uh, alleging that Bernie Sanders might be racist because he used a completely legitimate non-racist word that just happens to sound like a racist word. This is a follow-up to uh, his other attack that Bernie might be a racist because he didn't praise Barack Obama like he praised Jesse Jackson because in Tommy's mind, all black politicians should be treated exactly the same by white people <laughs> or they're racist. <laughs> Um, maybe we can just spare ourselves uh, from Tommy's next oppo dump and just throw him in the garbage can this week. And yes, yes, Tommy, you can bring your hat with you in the garbage can. Garbage candidate number six, Marco Rubio. His thirst tweets for the coup in Venezuela are just getting sadder and sadder. First, the New York Times reported it was opposition protesters that burned the fake aid convoy, not pro-Maduro factions, as Rubio initially claimed. Rubio also then claimed that there were 80 fatalities at a hospital because of recent blackouts. Information, or disinformation, I should say, because it was quickly refuted by a Wall Street Journal reporter. <clears throat> Finally, and most embarrassingly, Rubio claimed the blackout was related to a failure at a German dam. There is no German dam. The foreign policy expert was referring to a report by a journalist named Hermann Dam. <laughs> Hermann with the G, the German, uh, the uh, Spanish G at the start there. It's Hermann, that if, if you're an idiot, you might uh, look at the byline and somehow on your foam party addled mind think that this is actually a German dam and not a journalist named Herman Dom. God damn it, Marco. Look, it's obvious why Rubio is making these mistakes. He's insanely horny for this right-wing coup in Venezuela. Uh, we might need to put Rubio in the garbage before he pokes someone's eye out with his war boner. All right. We've got Rubio. We've got uh, Tommy Christopher, we've got Condé Nast, we've got Aunt Becky and all the other rich parents involved in this scheme. 
Uh, we got Brett Stevens. We've got Tucker Carlson. The votes are in. We've got a uh, we've got a pretty unanimous, well, not unanimous, but a wide wide margin winner this week. Tucker Carlson, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, he's oh. in there with all the comments from uh, Stormfront.org calling him the only uh, mainstream journalist they respect. Tom, Tommy Christopher's hat's in there already, too, anyways. <laughs> Along with Marco Rubio's tweets. We both got there. All right, that is all there is tonight. <laughs> Bringing out the... Uh, music there yeah it's all right we're having a little uh, technical difficulties at the end here but uh if you like what you watch consider subscribing patreon.com slash district sentinel exclusive subscriber only content patreon.com slash district sentinel five bucks a month also uh while you're here on youtube hit subscribe tune in uh, next week for our youtube show we got uh, good content tomorrow we've got uh look out on our soundcloud channel where we've got the interview uh uh on haiti yeah that's coming, coming out, out tomorrow. And uh, we got the Hangout at 420 for our subscribers. Exclusive show on YouTube here again. 420 tomorrow for subscribers. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on uh, the old Twitter machine at the DC Sentinel run by this guy, SK1. Thanks to our sponsor, the Congressional Dish Podcast, hosted by Jen Briney. Find it at congressionaldish.com and the Middle East Report. MERIP.org. Subscribers back tomorrow for the 420 show. Everyone else will see you next week. We're here in D.C. so that you don't have to be.